sometimes a, a long time, sometimes weeks, and or sometimes it's formulating over months. And this morning I was planning to talk about how we hear from God. And then this past week happened. And I felt like we as Christians, as people who live in this country, have a responsibility to talk about and to address and to think about, to consider what's going on in our country, what's going on with our neighbors. I saw something, I, I know a, a pastor, a Presbyterian pastor in, in California, and he um, wrote something online just a couple of days ago, and it said, Dear Church, address what you will this Sunday, but know that the ability to choose not to speak of racism is a choice of privilege. And what that means is that most of us here can be pretty comfortable to come and do what we've always done on this Sunday morning. We can be pretty comfortable to sing songs and to pray prayers and to talk about how God can speak to us, but that's not the case for everyone. We don't feel the pain and the fear and the hurt and the distress that our African-American brothers and sisters across this nation have been feeling this week and are feeling this morning. And so I think we have a responsibility today to consider what's going on, to talk and to think about what we do, what we do. I'm a little nervous about going through some of this because I feel a little uh, unqualified. I feel like it's a big, a big topic to talk about racism. Um, and, and I worry because it's so big and it's so relevant and it's a little bit dangerous. And I feel like if I get it wrong or I don't say it quite right, that we can walk away misunderstanding what the way we should respond, we can walk away offended, we can walk away not caring. I can say something wrong and miss the point. I have a, I, I know a, a lady, an African-American lady, and I was listening to something. She had um, actually recorded a conversation that we had had a while back, and she was talking about issues of racism in America, and she said, People who love me have to take the risk. And I think that's really the case. If we love our brothers and sisters who are a different race than us, especially people in America who are black, then we have to take the risk to talk about it when it's un uncomfortable, to be involved when it's not something we would normally do, to speak peace, and bring the love of Jesus into circles where maybe we wouldn't normally go. So, today we're going to talk about racism. Um, I heard years ago someone say the purpose of a minister is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. You might have heard that saying before. And uh, I've always thought I'm better at the afflicting than the comforting. 
in a lot of years of in church work and doing ministry, I got, I've kind of gotten better at the comforting part, but I've realized I'm better at the afflicting. So uh, we're going to have some affliction today. Although I have also realized that what people really like in their sermon is about 50% comfort, about 10% affliction, about 40% jokes. I'm not really very good at jokes. I'm not really very good at comfort. I heard somebody say, I was talking to somebody this morning and they said, oh, Jason's speaking, That's, uh, I always like that. And they asked me, uh, why I don't do that for a living? I said, well, then you gotta visit people in the hospital and stuff. I want to read a couple of statements that I saw either written or spoken by some people over the past few days. The thing that makes me most afraid is that I'll be afraid. I don't know what I'll do if a police officer has a gun pointed at me and is shouting instructions to me. I'm afraid I'll move too fast, too slow. I'm afraid I won't be calm. I'm afraid that I could die in front of my wife and children. From someone else, while preparing to get back on the road today, I realized that the worries I had about taking this trip while black are too real. My body is not safe. I almost let myself get comfortable to be completely immersed in the amazing opportunity of seeing the United States. But now I remember that I can only enjoy the scenery for a few seconds before regularly checking the rearview mirror for the predator of the modern day black man. Someone I know who's white but has an adopted black child. Today I will have to explain to my eight year old black son what happened to Philando Castile. Some say he's too young to learn about this. I would have said the same thing about Tamir Rice. I'm scared for my son, scared of him simply living in this world. I think when we just see the news, when we just experience from that kind of distance what has gone on this week, it's very easy for us to stay removed and to not feel the feelings that have gone on with black people across our nation. But we have to know and we have to understand the amount of pain and fear that's going on right now. So I want us to be considering that throughout this morning. And I want to talk a little bit about kind of uh, what's brought us here. I work in housing. I've worked in, in Habitat, with Habitat for Humanity for many years. I uh, also work with James City County Housing. When we work in housing, we, ha we have to path and path through. It's very important to understand fair housing laws. Um, you probably have seen this little symbol maybe on realty advertisements or on, or someone says fair housing lender, fair housing uh, community, whatever it is. And we might not pay very much attention to it, but. When we work in housing, we have to really understand what this is all about because it's, uh, we can get in big trouble if we're not paying attention to it. Fair housing law 
is actually part of the Civil Rights Act, which came into effect in 1968. Um, it protects race, color, religion, national origin, sex, familial status, and disability. So a housing community can't say, you can't live here because you have a disability. Housing community, uh, a, a realtor can't say, we can't sell you a house in this part of town because of your race, but we can sell you this other house. Um, can't say, because you have children, you can't live here. Those are all protected areas, protected from discrimination. This law was part of, was actually Title VIII, the last part of the Civil Rights Act. And it came into effect at the urging of Lyndon Johnson just one week after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. This was basically the culmination of what had been going on in the Civil Rights Act. And housing might not seem like a real big deal to us, but housing has had a tremendous effect on the way racism has unfolded in our country over the past 100 years, especially. What was going on, especially coming, especially as young men were coming back from World War II, is that all of a sudden the United States said you should be able to own houses. There was a good economy, there was easy credit, there were government-backed loans, and so all of these young men coming back, it was very easy for them to buy houses. And this is when the suburbs really came about. And so all of a sudden, all these young men got easy loans, bought houses, these communities sprang up, people moved out of cities and into suburbs. But something else that was happening was that for, um, for black people, for minorities, a lot of groups who were selling houses, including the FHA, which is the Federal Housing Administration, was saying, if you have mixed race communities, it brings down property values. So we're going to say this area is predominantly black on a map. This area is this new area where white people are moving. So we'll sell, we will sell houses to people in this area. Banks said we will make loans to people in, this, in these areas. We will not make loans to people in these areas. This was called redlining because red lines and areas were drawn around areas that were considered high risk. This next picture, this next slide, is a wall in Detroit that's called the Eight Mile Wall. This is in, this was built in 1942 because an area, a, a new development area, banks were saying, we're not going to loan because it's too close to a black neighborhood. So they built this wall, which extends for about a half a mile. It's a foot thick and six feet high made out of concrete. And all of a sudden, when the wall was up, the property values weren't at risk anymore. This wall still exists in Detroit today. Can you hit the next one? You can see this is an old picture in the next one. So the black community was on one side and the white community was on the other side. These kind of practices happened all across our nation. And what happened was black people ended up being confined and ghettos were basically created. 
And white people moved out. Today in housing, we, do, we say that owning a house increases intergenerational wealth. And it does. And what happened for all these white middle class families, they were able to build wealth and it changed the shape of the middle class in America. But for black people, especially poor black people, they're still stuck in the inner city and in the ghetto. For some black people, they did move out. And there are some communities where there were black families that moved in. And what actually began to happen in the 1960s when the civil rights movement happened, a lot of uproar happened and we thought, oh, we went through this. There are some black people that live in my neighborhood. There's some black people that work in my job. And we started to think into the 70s and the 80s that we are a post-racial nation, that racism is not a problem anymore. And I think for a lot of us, we can still think that. We can still think that racism is not a big deal. And actually, racism is not something we talk a lot about and focus a lot on. Racism is not what we talk about in polite conversation. Because it's not a real big deal, and when we talk about it, we make it worse. Well, that's out of our position of privilege as white, middle-class people that we can say it's not a big deal. Because in the world that we might live in, it's not a big deal. But then, for people who live in a different world behind that wall, it's a, it's a reality that they live with every single day. A reality that we have really become unaware of. Housing projects um, were established in throughout, um, coming, coming from the 40s up throughout uh, really the 90s into the 2000s in different kinds of ways. Can we go to the next one? And the next one. This is a housing project called Pruitt Igo in St. Louis. Um, Pruitt Igo is, I think, 17 buildings that were developed and said this is going to be the ideal housing project. But people quickly found that when we just pack all of these poor people who we don't really want in the rest of our city, we just pack them all into one space, we end up with all kinds of problems. We increase poverty, we increase crime, we increase family problems. Pruitt Igo actually didn't last very long. In the next slide, we actually see it uh, being torn down. Now in St. Louis, it's really just kind of a story of the failure of, actually for all over the United States, Pruitt Igo is a story of the failure of, of uh, certain housing projects. Um, I work a lot with people who receive assistance now for housing, and generally we don't do it that way anymore. Um, when, when we're trying to help someone who receives assistance, the model is that they choose housing, they receive a, ha a housing assistance and live in a, a neighborhood with everybody else. And the idea is that in, in a mixed community where there are wealthier people and there are poorer people, there are people in the middle that it benefits everyone. Um, and you know, I, I think that's um, a, a, an idea that we see in the kingdom of God as well. That we are a people that are made up of a lot and it benefits of, of all kinds of people and it benefits everyone. 
In these high-rise structures, it was also talked about later on that um, in, in kind of theory of what the problem is with, um, with housing projects, that the higher buildings are, the more problems arise. It sounds strange, but um, now when we look at places, um, especially even look around Williamsburg at apartment complexes, almost none of them are above three stories. Um, we talked about that uh, stairways need to be exposed in public. Public spaces need to have a lot of light and air. If we go into apartment buildings now, we don't see, we see almost no stairways that are inside. Stairways are outside, they're open spaces. They're spaces where people can, can um, consider, uh, can take some ownership of and can care about. And there aren't just those dead spaces. That's a lot of what happened in Pruitt-Igoe. There's, there's a lot of uh, crime and problems that took case, place in, in real tall, scary stairwells. In a lot of these places, um, like this, where minority people were just kind of crammed, were just kind of pushed out of the way, crime increased, the war on drugs in the 1980s. Um, some of us might kind of look at the war on drugs as something that needed to happen, but a lot of what happened was minority people received the brunt of the attack. We can say, oh, well, they were doing more crime and selling more drugs. Um, if we look at a lot of what happened now, hit the next slide. The war on drugs seemed to be targeted at minority people. And the next one, a lot of statistics now say that a majority of drug users in the United States are white, but a majority of the people who are arrested and imprisoned are black. Um, some of those kind of statistics are a little bit debatable, but some of them are absolutely not. That uh, black men, especially in the United States, receive harsher prison sentences, receive more prison sentences, and longer prison sentences for the same crimes as white people. That uh, it said that one in three black men in our country will go to prison at some time in their life. It said that, I think it's one in 10 black men is currently in prison in the United States. And that's, when we talk about statistics like that in kind of a white space, sometimes we can kind of think, oh, well, that's because they did crime. I'm not saying that black men who are in prison didn't do any crimes, but there is an imbalance. There's an imbalance that happens when we are putting away a certain segment of our population. And then what happens is you have a, a huge uh, percentage of the black population who is going to jail, um, sometimes for reasons, for the same reasons that white people would not go to jail. But when they're going to jail, even if it's for a short period of time, they get out and they can't get a job. Probably all of us know somebody who was in jail and wanted to straighten some things out and get a job, couldn't get a job. They can't vote. So what happens when a third of the black men in the United States of America, we have made it so they can't vote, they can't get jobs, we're, 
we are crushing a whole community and segment of our population. We're saying you don't have the right to speak into the, the government that controls your fate in this country. And we're crushing the economic ability of this community to better itself. Next one. When we talk about racism, this is what we're talking about. Racism is not simply me saying the N-word or not liking black people. Racist, a racist is not simply the guy who doesn't want to live next door to a black family. We have structures all around us now that perpetuate racist systems in America. The prison system, education systems, uh, systems of economics and jobs and voting that perpetuate racism. So essentially nobody has to be prejudiced anymore. Um, we're, we're generally in an area where we all know that it's impolite to be prejudiced and to say bad things about other races. We generally know that. Even the person who lives in the backwoods of Alabama generally knows that. I'm not picking on Alabama. Alabama statistically is the most racist state. Sorry from Alabama. We don't have to be racist anymore in those outward kinds of uh, activities. It's built in. It's built in. And racism has become a system. Racism is an evil system. Next slide. That's really important for us to understand. We talked some about sin in Sunday school this morning and the activity of sin and what sin is. I think this is a lot of what sin is, that sin gets built into the structures of our human systems. And that's when it's really, really problematic that it doesn't require us to act anymore in sinful ways. It's already built in. When Paul talked about principalities and powers, I believe this was part of what he was talking about. Not simply racism, but sin that's built into the system. Sin that's built into the power structure of the society in which we live. Racism is, is an evil system. And, and therefore, it's, it doesn't require us to be racist. When we're talking about racism, we're not saying, Oh, you people need to stop saying those mean things you say. We probably all of us love and appreciate people of other races who are around us. But for us to dismantle a racist system doesn't mean we're just nice to people. It means we move in directions where we take on that system. A lot of times when um, people talk about Black Lives Matter, when people talk about some of the, the things that have been going on, uh, 
the reaction is, well, all lives matter. I'm going to talk about that in just a little bit. I don't want to get too deep into it. Well, police lives matter. Well, look at the way black people kill each other. Well, don't we care about police officers? When we say that we're caring about black lives and black people, we're not negating anybody else. When we say it's important for us to care about black people, we're not saying it's less important to care about white people. We're not saying we don't care about white people anymore. That's really important for us to understand because sometimes there is this reaction. All around us, there's this reaction. where, And I've seen it over the past couple of days, um, especially on the internet, where, well, why don't you care about... We do care, but we care about everybody. But we have to say that there is a system at work that we all have a responsibility to take on. When we're saying that... that uh, policing and law enforcement needs some adjustment, needs some reform. We're not saying we don't care about police officers. We're saying we don't want people to die. And if people are dying, then something needs to change. We're not saying that police officers are racist and that they hate black people and just want to go out and shoot them. We're saying there's a system at place that influences all of the political structures around us and it influences policing. And even if every single police officer is absolutely not racist, that system is still at work and influencing the law enforcement in the world around us. Let's talk about privilege for just a minute. That's a word that kind of gets talked about and um, I want to talk about, a, for just a minute, what exactly privilege is. I worked with um, someone in Habitat who would talk about, um, when he talked about housing, he would talk about kind of the position that he and his family was in, and that his daughter was a valedictorian um, and had recently graduated high school. And he said, basically, we bought that, that valedictorian status. He wasn't saying they bribed somebody. He wasn't saying they said, oh, hey, here's a little extra to give my daughter good grades. He was saying they were in the position where when there was a science project, they had the money to go out, buy whatever needed to be bought. When there were after school activities that required an extra couple hundred dollars, they were able to do that. When their daughter needed extra test prep, they were able to pay for that in ways that other people were not able to pay for that. And so their daughter was at an advantage in school simply because they were able to do those things that maybe it seems sometimes like everybody should be able to do, but everybody can't. If you've worked in school or at students with students at all, you know that there are plenty of students whose, whose parents never pay for their, their science project materials. Not because they necessarily don't care, but because they can't. And so there is this, uh, oh, there's a place, a, a place where all of us are kind of starting at a different point. I saw an activity a couple of years ago where um, everyone in the room was asked to line up just in the middle of the room across a big empty space. And 
we're told to either step forward or step backwards depending on the kind of the statements that were read. I want to go through some of those. Um, hit the next one. If you're white, if you're a white male, take one step forward. If there have been times in your life when you skipped a meal because there was no food in the house, take one step backwards. If you have visible or invisible disability, that, that takes, then take one step backwards. If you attended grade school with people you felt were like yourself, take one step forward. If you grew up in an urban setting, take one step backwards. If your family had health insurance, take one step forward. If your work holidays coincide with religious holidays that you, you celebrate, take one step forward. If you were born in the United States, take a step forward. If English is your first language, take a step forward. If you came from a supportive family environment, take a step forward. If you have completed high school, take one step forward. If you were able to complete college, take one step forward. If you're a citizen of the United States, take one step forward. And then can you imagine, there, there were more questions, but this whole room that all started in a straight line, and you look, and there are people up here, and there are people back here, and there. That's how we understand privilege. That there are certain things that are just built into the way we live, the way we grow, grew up, that put us ahead. And for a lot of minority communities, they don't have those positions of privilege at all. So they're at the back of the room. And that's the starting point. And so we can just say things like, well, they just need to work harder. They just need to stop selling drugs. They just need to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. But when you're starting from back here, and everybody else is starting from up there, and everybody else has a certain advantage, it's much, much, much harder. Our position of privilege is very real. Simply as white people, I grew up without much money in my family. There was no health insurance in my family. Um, finances were often a struggle. But simply, being white and being male puts me in a position where I can I have a lot of opportunity in life. A lot of opportunity that somebody who grew up as a poor black person does not. We see a lot about Black Lives Matter in um, going on right now. Black Lives Matter really emerged um, a couple of years ago in the middle of violence surrounding police shootings. It seems that whenever someone brings up Black Lives Matter, there's somebody who shouts, all lives matter. It's fine. Black, when we say Black Lives Matter, we're not saying anybody else doesn't matter. I uh, posted on the internet just a couple of days ago to get some other input. When we say Black Lives Matter, what do we mean? I want to read a couple of those things that, that came up. Read the next slide. A couple of those things that were posted. Hit the next one. I don't get to hide in my shell and do the easy thing anymore. It means I'm responsible as a person of privilege. Next one. Black Lives Matter means our society tends to discount the lives of people of color up to and including equipping all lives matter as a way to avoid addressing the true problem. Black Lives Matter means our society has demonstrated through its history and collective actions that black lives matter less than other lives. 
Black Lives Matter means that when it comes to civil rights, we have progressed in only two things, our ability to camouflage racism and the technological means to uncover it. It means we have a responsibility to affirm those who have lived under oppression and marginalization. Black Lives Matter means we have a responsibility to stand with those who have lived under oppression and marginalization. It means black people are human beings. It means black people have loves and dreams and hopes and ambitions. It means black people are precious to God. It means black people bear the image of the creator. Uh, one other statement, can you hit the next one that was in response to a lot of that as, that, I, that I posted? This was from a man I knew also who's black. He says, black Americans are crying to be seen empathetically. Please just stop for a moment and recognize that we have been an invisible people via our national institutions, which have created divisions among us. See beyond the created institutional lens, and there are many and simply view through the heart empathetically. Now, I, I think that's really at the heart of the attitude that as white people we need to have, that we see black people as valuable and we view their position empathetically. When they express pain, and anger and fear, that we don't say, just get over that, but we have empathy with that. We seek to understand the position and the situation that they have been in. Read John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Hit the next slide. While Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him. He sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, commanded... In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down, wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened her up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on do not sin. The way I would like to relate to the story this morning is that what we see in Jesus, what we see in the heart of Jesus, is to reach down, to put himself on the level of the accused of 
the abused and the marginalized person in this story and to take to be on her side when we hear the cries of black lives matter we also hear the retort of all lives matter I just saw something this morning that my wife shared with me that Jesus never seemed to say something like that what he seemed to say in this situation is that adulterers lives matter what he seemed to say in other situations is sinners lives matter prostitutes lives matter children's lives matter women's lives matter the people in that society that were pushed to the outside and said you're not as important that it was okay for them to abuse to stone to kill that it was okay for them to say you live over there we don't want you to live next to us Jesus said their lives matter and so the heart of Jesus seems to always be with the abused and the marginalized with the people that get pushed to the outside the heart of Jesus is for unity the passages that Pastor David read at the beginning was a prayer that Jesus prays in John at the end of his life and over and over again and throughout that prayer he asks that they would be one that they would be one at the heart of the gospel the next slide is a cross where we die and we're born again as one family the heart of the gospel is also a table where men and women and young and old and rich and poor and natives and foreigners and black and white share a meal and serve each other yet on a Sunday morning only 5% of churches in America are racially integrated statistics tell us that uh, 5% of evangelical churches 2.5% of mainline churches are multiracial it means on a Sunday morning more than 95% of us as Christians who value unity who value the family that God created us to be only a tiny percentage have made racial unity a priority now I know we have lots of reasons and I live in a community that's about half white and half black the churches are absolutely segregated doesn't mean anybody hates each other just the way it is and so both black people and white people not with any kind of animosity will talk about it and say well you know we have different styles of worship we have different ways of doing things and it's okay sometimes we get together and we have a really good time but we have different traditions and you know that's okay but I think we have to remember that in this prayer that Jesus prayed in John what he says as he gets toward the end he says I gotta find it father I want those who have been given to me have been given me to be 
with me where I am and to see my glory and glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I and that I myself may be in them. Um, there's a part a little earlier that reiterates some of that, that that's talking about, that says the, the people around will see the love for one of another, will see the unity, and that will express the heart of God. That will express who God is. We can say, we can say a lot of things. If I have more boldness, that will change the world. If I'm able to express Jesus more aggressively and loudly, that will change the world around me. If I am able to know the Bible better, that will change the world around me. If I am able to get my friends and neighbors to go to church, that will change the world around me. But Jesus says in this, if they see that you are one, they see the unity that you have, that will change the world around us. And that's hard. That's hard. It's easier to read your Bible more. It's harder to decide we're going to be uncomfortable. We're going to intentionally be uncomfortable because we want to be with people who are different from us. I know I'm going long. A few things that we can do. I think we skip a, there we go. Talk about racism with white people. Sometimes it's uncomfortable, but um, we need to not just expect people of other races to, be, to bring it up. Learn more about black perspectives. I gotta tell you, if I'm, in a, if I'm at an activity or in a room and it's all people of a different race, it's all black people, it's a little uncomfortable. Um, because it's kind of a different culture. And there's a different way of speaking and joking, and it's not the way I grew up. But it's our responsibility to learn. Listen without speaking. Sometimes we just got to listen for a while and not have anything to say. Be proactive about unity and diversity. That means we, we push ahead. We decide there are... No black voices in this space, that has to change. Because we are missing out on a perspective in this world and in the body of Christ that's important to us, that's important to the world around us, and that's important to God. Repent of feeling superior. It's real easy for us to feel superior. It's real, and, and we don't express it, but it's real easy for us to kind of think, well... If they just become a little bit more like me, that would be good. Right? I think we all kind of think that somewhere. Oh, if they just worship a little bit more like we worship, that would be good. View the issue as urgent. I was talking with someone, and I've seen the same kind of sentiment expressed over the last couple of days, that for the African-American community, the issue is urgent. 
And someone expressed to me, it's like the house is burning down. And the neighbors just say, oh, just calm down. It'll be okay. No, it's like the house is burning down. And if it feels that urgent for someone else who we claim is our brother and sister, it needs to feel that urgent for you and me. A couple little bit more practical things um, that I think would help kind of open our eyes, help us to see things a little more clearly and better, and uh, some of this you probably haven't thought of, look for diverse news sources. If we're getting all of our news from one source, we're not hearing the whole story. And I'd encourage you, if you're watching things like protests and things like that that are happening in other places around the country, what's shown on the evening news is not the whole story because they only have two minutes to get something that's really exciting, which is usually a fight. So look for some news on Twitter. Watch Trevor Noah on The Daily Show a couple of days ago, the July 6th episode. Watch the documentary, The House I Live In. Talks about incarceration. Read The New Jim Crow. Uh, read Chasing the Scream, which is about the war on drugs. Listen to the Liturgist podcast, episode Black and White, which is really eye-opening about, about black and white issues. I see a couple people wrote those down. There is this man who used to come and speak at my church, and he would always say, good disciples take notes. And he would wait until everybody took out their pens. And then I think it's important that we watch the videos. We learn more about the, the people, the black people who were killed over the past couple years. Most of us don't know their names. We might be able to pick out the names of those who we've been hearing the past couple of days. Hit the next one. And the next one. Just in the past couple of years, those are black people who have been killed in the United States and what they were doing at the time they were killed. None of them ever went to court. They might have been doing something illegal, but they didn't deserve to die. Talked at the beginning about the Eight Mile Wall, which is in Detroit. That Eight Mile Wall still exists. But today, that's what it looks like. The next one. And the next one. You know, I, I think that's a, an amazing example of when things are made new. Now the community on both sides of that wall is black. But the wall has been made into something that's life-giving and joy-giving. And I think that that should be our attitude in so many of the problems that we see around us. It's like Joanne was talking about when God works all things together for good. It's not that I don't believe that God controls every bad thing that happens and wants it to happen, but I believe that the horror and the pain that's in the world around us can be turned around into something great. I think when we decide that we want to be people who will repent of the easy, comfortable place that we've been in, 
and decide that we want to see transformation in the world around us, that's when the bad is turned to good. That's when God makes all things new. That's when all things are working together for good. Can we pray? I want to invite you just as I pray that we lift up not so much the, the, the problems that we've seen around us, but we lift up our own attitudes and say to God and offer to God whatever we can to be able to say, God, I, I want to repent and turn around of the comfortable position I've had. I want to be in a position where I'm changing the world, where I'm bringing unity, bringing love, and not allowing a perpetuation of the racism in this country. God, I thank you that you have called us to be your people. That you have called us to be your hands, your agents in this world. And God, I ask that you would help us to be truly worthy of what it means to be that. God, I'm sorry for being comfortable and for allowing the systems to just continue around me that are evil. God, I ask that you would show us all the ways that we can make change, the ways that we can be intentional about inclusion, intentional about diversity, intentional about unity and love, the ways that we can let ourselves be less and make someone else more, the ways that we can be with somebody in the pain and hurt that they feel. God, I pray that especially that over the next coming weeks as people in our country are still kind of recovering from the violence and the fear that's felt, that we would be ambassadors of your love. Not that we would just speak all the answers, but we could be people who love and who listen and who are willing to help make change. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.